The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So those consultation requirements, while they may not appear to be a big deal or a key modifier of the charging policy clarifications, I think that set of consultation requirements and best practices will materially help to address some of the types of concerns that we've seen raised by the early CFAA. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 28, 2022. On May 19th, the Department of Justice announced a new policy concerning how it will charge cases under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or CFAA, the primary statute used against those who engage in unlawful computer intrusions. Over the years, the statute has been criticized because it has been difficult to determine the kinds of conduct it criminalizes, which has led to a number of problems, including the chilling of security research. I sat down with Andrea Matwishan, professor of law and associate dean of innovation at Penn State Law School, to discuss DOJ's new charging policy and some of the issues it attempts to address. We talked about some of the problems created by the CFAA's vague terms, how the new charging policy tries to protect good faith security research, and the significance of the requirement that prosecutors must now consult with the Computer Crimes and Intellectual Property section at Maine Justice before charging a case under the CFAA. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 28th. Andrea Matwishan and DOJ's new CFAA charging policy. Andrea, on May 19th, the Department of Justice updated its policy guiding charging decisions under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And in many respects, this change in policy was significant news. It affects all prosecutors who are charging cases under the CFAA. And and there are three significant components of this new charging policy, and I'd like to talk about each of them in turn with you. But first, we should remind our listeners about the CFAA's two core provisions. In other words, what does the statute prohibit? 
Before I answer your question, Stephanie, I must disclaim that my comments here today are entirely in my capacity as a professor and in no way are attributable to any government agencies with whom I collaborate or to which I am currently appointed. So to answer your question, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, has two core provisions that are used in slightly different ways. The first is the provision prohibiting access without authorization. And that's 18 U.S.C. 1030A1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And the second provision uh, is the provision about exceeding authorized access. And that is 18 U.S.C. 1030A1, 2, and four. So basically, the first one without authorization means that someone is engaging with a system in ways that they never had specific permission to engage with, loosely put colloquially. And the second provision is about the situation where someone is engaging with that system over and above what they were ostensibly allowed to do. But of course, the problem is that these core terms without authorization and exceeding authorized access, they're not expressly defined by the statute, at least not in a way that allows for them to necessarily easily map to technology behaviors and conduct clearly. So that meant that in practice over time, these provisions, while they could be cleanly applied in some cases, in some other types of cases, there were ambiguities that arose, uh, in particular with the question of what it means to exceed authorized access. And so that's sort of a quick and dirty intro to the legal moment that we find ourselves in that was part of the motivation, I suspect, for DOJ releasing the clarifications in the guidance uh, that happened on May 19th. And in fact, over the years, a number of scholars, including yourself, have been essentially explaining the, the concerns about the lack of clarity surrounding these terms, these core provisions of the statute. You and others have warned that they have and, and could lead to very bad charging decisions and outcomes. Can you give us some examples of actual cases or the kinds of cases that could be charged under the CFAA that have raised significant concerns? Sure. So uh, one of the articles that I wrote called Law of the Zebra introduced the idea of a category of potential CFAA violators uh, that might be termed contract hackers, meaning that these are situations that arise in civil contexts where contractual promises and the constraints of the CFAA start to clash. And we could say that there are four and a half kinds of contract hackers, and I'll walk through each of them in turn here. So the first set of contract hackers, uh, we might connect with the case of USV Lori Drew, where a 
regular user violates the terms of use of a website, for example, and the nature of the violation provides enough concern that the mere contract breach there is used as the hook for building out a CFAA claim. So in other words, the argument would be that the breach of contract was the act of exceeding authorized access. And therefore, it is enough of a transgression to criminally charge under the CFAA. So the reason that that kind of a formulation would be potentially problematic is that, as we all know from clicking on things on the internet, terms of use today have become very long and in reality unusable at the point at which a website's terms of use are longer than war and peace and can be amended in the opinion of the drafter, the website, at any point in time, you start to get into a situation where the contractual consent to that kind of a thing is really pushing up against the fictional rather than the real nature of reciprocally induced bargained for consent for things of value being exchanged, which is kind of the first year law student magic lingo of contract law. So when you start to allow for even minor breaches potentially of those kinds of agreements to be the basis for uh, piggybacked on criminal charge, that really changes the nature of engaging on the web as a consumer. And that same dynamic plays out also in the next few kinds of contract hackers. So the second is the situation where you have an allegedly disloyal employee or business partner that is perceived to be violating a permitted use policy of an enterprise um, or violating the terms of an employment arrangement. Um, So you could subdivide these into sort of commercial thieves and vandals and maybe slackers. So we see in cases such as International Airports uh, v. Citroen in the Seventh Circuit and um, US v. Nozzle in the Ninth Circuit, you have these situations where you had employees who left particular enterprises and they were, uh, in the the opinion of their employers, either destroying information on the way out, in the case of Citroen, or using information that was not theirs for the taking and reuse. In the case of Nozel, and there, there was some credential misuse as well, and um, enlisting the assistance of uh, another third-party employee. It, it It was complicated. But basically, you end up with the Seventh Circuit and the Ninth Circuit taking different analytical approaches. So the Seventh Circuit adopted kind of a loyalty test that at the magic moment that an employee decides to engage in computer-ish conduct that violates the interests of the employer, that is a sort of magic moment of disloyalty. I'm caricaturing a little bit, but not that much. And that from that point on, the access is not fully authorized. 
Um, the Ninth Circuit took a more restrictive approach, a more protective approach of, we could say, startup culture, and tended to cleave more closely to the questions of technological barriers. And so, you know, obviously using someone else's credentials uh, and impersonating that person to log into a system, that's relatively clean cut as, as an act of unauthorized access. So those disloyal employee cases are the ones where contractual promises of employment and the CFAA potentially clash. Um, the third set are the entrepreneurs and builders who are sometimes using techniques such as uh, screen scraping and data aggregation, and they are uh, using access that is sometimes made available by particular companies um, through public websites or um, using APIs in ways that the builder may find problematic. And so in those cases, you see uh, a concern about whether even though the data is as a technological matter available, whether it is exceeding authorized access. And that was part of what was at issue in the HiQ v. LinkedIn case, which was a screen scraping case, which was influenced by the outcome in the latest Supreme Court case on point. So that is the third case um, that has been Van Buren inflected and also connecting to the guidance that we see coming out of DOJ. The fourth case deals with security researchers. So particularly when you contractually hire someone to penetration test your operations or to do a code audit or to otherwise engage in even you know social engineering uh, attacks on the physical security of your enterprise to get into your server room or whatever it may be, there are situations that can arise where the lines of the scope of the permitted conduct in connection with the penetration test are not crystal clear or sometimes uh, mistakes can happen either in the conveyance of information to the researcher or the penetration tester or an unintentional fat finger move by the penetration tester. Or particularly with security researchers, sometimes the interfaces themselves are not communicating where those lines are as a matter of their technology design. Um, so this was something that came up uh, in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act Section 1201 anti-circumvention context. And it was that concern of unclear system design that motivated in part the Copyright Office and the Librarian of Congress to approve a security research exemption in 2015 to Section 1201 of the DMCA. Um, I was one of the lawyers on that. And it was that lack of clarity in the technology structures and the translation to an understandable legal line um, that animated that granted request, which has been renewed every three years since. And it also shows up as a consequence in the DOJ guidance, which does a shout out to precisely that DMCA 1201 exemption for security research. 
I'm going to have you stop there for a moment because I, I, I do want to, you've started to talk about the guidance and I do want to walk our listeners through that carefully. You noted the Supreme Court's 2021 decision in Van Buren, which provides some greater clarity about the meaning of one of the two CFA core provisions exceeding authorized access. Can you give us just a brief background first on Van Buren? Who was he and what did he do? And ultimately, what was he charged with? Sure. So I, in the last question, said there were sort of four and a half. This is the one half. There is a repeating set of cases that deal with government employees abusing access to databases of citizens, uh, the public's information. And so here we have a case where a former Georgia police sergeant, Nathan Van Buren, used his patrol car computer to access a database and retrieve information about a particular license plate in exchange for money that he had been paid by a third party who turned out to be an FBI informant. And so basically Van Buren used this database for a purpose that was not within the scope of his employment because this was a a personal errand for cash rather than the investigation of an official case through the Georgia Police Department. Um, So he was charged with exceeding authorized access under 18 U.S.C. 1030A2. And the term, again, exceeding authorized access is defined as accessing a computer with authorization and to use such access to obtain or alter information in the computer that the accessor is not entitled to so obtain or alter as defined in 1030E6. So Van Buren was convicted by a jury and he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. He appealed to the 11th Circuit and the basis of his appeal was the claim that exceeding authorized access only refers to those situations where the information that was obtained doesn't fall within categories of information that the accused was entitled to access. And in this case, he he could access the, those categories of information in his capacity as a police sergeant through his patrol car computer. But this was just a different kind of sort of hidden agenda, but that doesn't mean that he didn't have permission to access that kind of information, Van Buren argued. So how did the court ultimately resolve the question about whether his conduct constituted a violation of exceeding authorized access under the CFAA? So ultimately, the court tells us that an individual exceeds authorized access when he accesses a computer with authorization, but then obtains information located in particular areas of the computer, and I'm quoting from the Supreme Court decision here, such as files, folders, or databases that are off limits to him. The parties agree that Van Buren accessed the law enforcement database with authorization. So the court took Van Buren's side 
and the court continues, the only question is whether Van Buren could use the system to retrieve license plate information. Both sides agree that he could. So the court ultimately found that Van Buren did not exceed authorized access to the database, and uh, therefore the the court reversed the judgment of the 11th circuit, remanded the case and gave us some clarification that exceeding authorized access will be read by the court to at least loosely map onto the reality of technology access rather than the hidden agenda of the particular person doing the accessing. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. 
Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So then turning to DOJ's new charging policy, how does it implement Van Buren? And and does it address some of the problematic contract-based fact patterns that you previously had discussed? It does start to address some of those ambiguous areas. Um, So in particular, the DOJ guidance clarifies the charging policy for CFAA cases. And reading through the guidance, you can see that they've divided it into three discrete sections uh, discussing their charging policy in particular, one dealing with the situation where the access is without authorization, a second dealing with the situation where the access is exceeding authorized access, and then a third section that clarifies that the department will be looking at broader questions of uh, whether the prosecution serves the goals, the bigger picture goals of DOJ with respect to CFAA enforcement. So in particular, in that discussion, DOJ clarifies that the considerations such as security research and the value of the investigation and the set of uh, counterbalanced variables around the facts and circumstances will be considered in making charging determinations. So in particular, in that third piece of the charging policy document, that shout out to the Section 1201 exemption for security research that I mentioned previously is highlighted as a sign, a uh, consonant approach to the one that's articulated here in this guidance. And 
acknowledging something that the security research community has heard DOJ say for a long time now, that security research is an indispensable piece of this broader puzzle of making our society more secure, both for national security reasons and for reasons of corporate information security. So highlighting the importance of researchers as a key component of this ecosystem had certainly been the position of central DOJ for a long time, but because of the decentralized nature of some of the prosecution decisions in the past, the dominant opinion of the Computer Crimes Division at main justice has not necessarily been mirrored identically by other uh, pieces of uh, the Department of Justice. So U.S. attorneys and line prosecutors in not in D.C. have sometimes analyzed facts and circumstances in ways that I suspect would not have been the way that main justice, CSIPS, uh, computer crime team would have analyzed those facts. I want to pull a little bit more than on how this policy is looking to protect good faith security research. And, and the first thing I'll say is it says good faith security research, not just security research. Do you agree with this, this framing? Do you think it, it provides enough of the kind of protection to the security research that we know is, is necessary and extremely beneficial to the broader security ecosystem. I think it's a great start, and it mirrors the language that we have currently in the exemption um, with respect to DMCA um, Section 1201. The idea in that language in the copyright context, and I suspect in this context as well, is that Intent is something that courts regularly determine based on the facts of particular cases. So courts are comfortable with looking at the totality of circumstances around an alleged offense, as are prosecutors, uh, I suspect, uh, considering themselves also, if not equally capable, to deduce intent after an investigation of a particular incident. And where there appears to be clear evidence that an act, even if problematic, was made without malice, with an intent to help not hurt uh, the questions of security that are implicated, those are the situations where charging may not be in the best interest of the bigger picture of uh, improving security. So is this an absolute protection for all security research? No, no, I don't, I don't think it is. It creates the possibility, which could be a, a risk in some cases. We recently saw a lengthy discussion of, for example, the uh, CIA employee who, for, who allegedly leaked uh, sensitive attack tools um, to outsiders because of 
anger at his employer, allegedly. So you could have a situation where someone engaged in security research, even if it starts out as well-intentioned, things happen that causes a reevaluation um, and it ends up being somehow an intentional contribution to a criminal enterprise, um, though that is, I would hope, a very low probability event. I can understand uh, where that possibility would be left open by DOJ. So I think this gets us a long way, even if not as far as the security research community might hope to ultimately see it go. But the reason that this is stronger protection than it might appear on the face of that language is actually the consultation requirements section that appears before the charging policy discussion. So by shifting the consultation requirements from being entirely optional on the part of local prosecutors to a best practice statement and a requirement in the case of charging, it means that main justice is trying to even out the administration of charging and the application of the CFAA across the country. By encouraging investigative consultation, it means that there'll be a more consistent set of practices employed in uncovering evidence and building a possible case with respect to CFAA charges with the charging consultation being mandatory, um, and the language says the attorney for the government shall consult with CSIPs, meaning the central main DOJ's computer crime unit. And so there you ensure that the CSIPs folks who are deeply engaged in the day-to-day of the information security industry, the computer security implications of national security, and have a good handle on broader goals for improving our country's security as a whole, that those bigger picture considerations are effectively filtering in, or at least more effectively filtering in, to those local charging decisions. There's additionally a discussion of consultation for cases involving national security issues and a notification requirement for the Office of the Deputy Attorney General. So those consultation requirements, while they may not appear to be a big deal or a key modifier of the charging policy clarifications, I think that set of consultation requirements and best practices will materially help to address some of the types of concerns that we've seen raised by the early CFAA prosecutions that were often viewed as problematic, uh, partially because of the unevenness of the theories that were used or the approach to 
charging and settlement and pleading out that were employed in various cases. I think that you're very right to point out the significance of this aspect of the policy guidance, which may not be readily apparent because it's it's internal DOJ process, but it's it's been quite a long time coming and it will be interesting again to see over time how those internal processes might shape ultimately the, the charging decisions that we see occurring you know, across the country. So you've basically talked about um, a lot of the significant aspects of this charging policy, much of which is very good news. But are there other ways that you think that this guidance could be improved? So I think there's some room for potentially further clarifying the situations that are maybe less obvious uh, CFAA or computer intrusion fodder. For example, we haven't as often seen cases with integrity changes um, in a particular system. So, for example, the guidance could engage more directly with certain types of, we could say, one-off CFAA situations, such as uh, one where the employee or intruder modifies data internally, which would uh, certainly fall under a form of uh, intrusion harm, uh, but availability and integrity changes are not necessarily identical in their treatment and response as a technological matter. Um, On the availability front, the problems of botnets are growing, unfortunately, increasingly common. um, And we see ransomware similarly plaguing critical infrastructure systems in particular. So there's there's some room for clarification in the discussion of the definition of exceeding authorized access that the, the guidance provides. Um, I think it was written with an eye to confidentiality changes more than availability and integrity changes. There could be a discussion added on juvenile charging in particular. Sometimes the juvenile cases are ones that uh, become, at least for policy reasons, complicated because of children not being fully developed in a cognitive or moral sense, but yet some of these kids who demonstrate the most sophisticated attacking potential may grow up, assuming they turn toward good faith security research, uh, to be some of the next generation's most prodigious researchers, because there's certainly much skill involved in becoming a top flight security researcher. So you don't want to see a situation where kids are not given that chance for uh, redirecting their skills in socially productive ways. And I, I think that might be one of those areas that will be most influenced by those consultation requirements. Um, but it is something that that could be added with a bit more direction 
uh, for juvenile situations of computer intrusion. Scraping also wasn't expressly discussed here, though the Ninth Circuit vacated uh, the original ruling in the Q case um, and sent it back for reconsideration. Van Buren, according to the Ninth Circuit, reinforces their earlier determination that accessing a public website doesn't constitute a problem of access without authorization under the CFAA. DOJ has in conference talks in the security community explained that scraping publicly available information and port scans without more are generally not considered by the department to be a basis for a CFAA charge. And so putting that approach in writing could be another addition that would be useful. The guidance could also directly connect to prior guidance that CFAA released uh, for companies and the processes that DOJ advises on creating security vulnerability intake programs and the importance of having an obvious front door for submitting of information about flaws, bugs, malfunctions, misconfigurations to companies and that companies should welcome these reports, not feel them to be some sort of extortion attempt or or threat, uh, because in almost all cases, they are the reporting in good faith of something that a user or a researcher has stumbled upon in the course of uh, often just using a website. So DOJ released prior guidance uh, a few years ago on that point that was important, but I think underappreciated in its impact and its important framing of security as a duty on the part of companies, not merely a crime that that the reporting of a security flaw is not necessarily, uh, and in most cases, not the kind of CFAA-concerned conduct that um, DOJ would view as, as problematic because reporting security vulnerabilities before they are widely exploited is a good thing, and fixing your systems and iterating your security knowledge is a good thing. So that prior guidance was a nudge to companies basically to engage with the ISO standards on point and with the security uh, best practices and knowledge from the robust set of baselines developed by CISA and the security community and international organizations and NIST around what it means to have a solid security program and have corporate processes that reflect baselines of security in place. So I I think cross-referencing that policy would be potentially a useful bonus. So uh, in general, I think that this policy has advanced the clarity of the scope of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, even if not not perfect, what policy is perfect, um, it is certainly an important step in the right direction. And I was personally very glad to see it when it came out. So I have to ask you before we end, though, because, you know, we have been talking through this whole conversation about new policies, some, of course, which is based upon Supreme Court 
opinions. And of course, DOJ has to incorporate those opinions into policy. But some aspects of this policy are neither grounded in direct statutory language or in court opinions, such as how to, how to look at good faith security research. Do you think that Congress should look at, at codifying aspects of this policy? In other words, be, because policy can change when administrations change, is there a value for Congress essentially stepping up to the plate and, and codifying aspects of this policy? I think that's certainly worth considering in the DMCA 1201 exemption context, which was the precedent to the good faith security research language, the Copyright Office and the Librarian of Congress has expressly asked Congress to permanently codify that exemption for purposes of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So they did that a few years ago in their Section 1201 report. And so Yes, I think codifying, that would be a great place to start, to codify the DMCA Section 1201 security exemption for security research on consumer-facing devices. And that would then be a springboard into a CFAA codification of this type of approach. So I suspect that one pushback to a legislative clarification might be that, at least around the language of intent, that prosecutors would prefer to retain discretion around charging with as much flexibility as possible. That's a fair point. However, I think there's certainly room for uh, clarification of CFAA language, um, building on the Van Buren case and this guidance and that hopefully prior codification of the DMCA, Section 1201, security research exemption. Um, And then at that point, you have multiple forces pushing in the same direction that would allow for um, perhaps a a codification of um, this approach to make sure that a different future guidance wouldn't erode the progress of this particular guidance. I think that's a a reasonable suggestion, a reasonable discussion to have, and um, would also advance the conversation uh, significantly. We'll have to leave it there for now. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 